Hey there, this is Damien Blinkensop, your host for another episode of The Quantified Body. We're at episode seven. If there is one area of our bodies that is debated to extremes, with literally hundreds of differing strong opinions on it, it's nutrition. For many, beliefs about nutrition and diet are tribal. We put ourselves in different camps and we war against the other camps. Whether it be paleo, low-fat, low-carb, Atkins, high-fat, low-protein, vegan, raw vegan, and so on. It's exactly this sort of area where I see data as essential. Without data, we have no hope of cutting through the maze of opinions to get to what really works. Part of the problem with nutrition and diets is that we tend to think that one diet should be good for everyone. But increasingly, research and N equals 1 experiments are showing that that isn't the case. This is exactly why you should pay attention to today's show. Today we're looking at what has relatively recently become the fastest growing nutrition or diet trend, the high fat diet, also known in different guises as the ketogenic diet or the low carb diet. And specifically, we're gonna look at how this can affect different individual biochemistries, how we can measure ketosis and other biomarkers to understand how our specific biology reacts to this type of diet. This allows us to troubleshoot and course correct when it isn't getting the desired results we're looking for from it. To talk about this topic today, we have Jimmy Moore. In 2004, Jimmy, at 32 years of age, weighed 410 pounds. Since then, he has transformed his own biology and his health, shedding all that additional weight with low-carb and ketogenic diets. He has also interviewed nearly 900 people on his Living the Beta Low Carb Show podcast since then, discussing every aspect and detail of ketogenic diets you could think up. And most recently, he pulled together the best information from all of that in collaboration with the top experts he'd found into a book called Keto Clarity, Your Definitive Guide to the Benefits of a Low-Carb, High-Fat Diet. It's an extremely detailed read, and I'd recommend that anyone on or interested in high-fat, ketogenic, or low-carb diets read it. You'll definitely learn more, no matter your existing knowledge on the subject. To get the show notes, the MP3 download of the show, and a full transcript of the interview with Jimmy Moore, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episode 7. The Quantified Body New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Hey, Jimmy, thank you very much for making time to come on the podcast today. Hey, man, what's going on, Damien? It all sounds good. Um, so I wanted to get you on because you've spoken to a lot of people about one specific topic. How long have you been working in the area of ketosis? Well, ketosis uh, and low-carb diets, I've been doing this for about the past decade since I lost pretty famously 180 pounds on the Atkins diet back in 2004. But uh, really hot and heavy looking into ketosis and what we call nutritional ketosis in my new book, uh, probably since 2012. Okay, great. So you got into this, it was more focused on the low carb approach and you weren't really considering getting into ketosis and all all of these aspects. Well, I assumed that being low carb was ketosis when I first started this because a lot of Dr. Atkins's teachings talked about ketogenic diets and getting into a state of ketosis. And at the time, I thought it was all predicated just on limiting your carbohydrates. But I've since learned in my own 
testing on myself and then interviewing literally all the experts in the world on this topic, that that's just one element that it takes to get into a state of nutritional ketosis. There's really a whole lot more involved with it, which is why we wrote Keto Clarity. That's great. And so I understand it's a very individual kind of thing, which people weren't expecting, especially 10 years ago when you got started into this. Everyone was kind of saying, everyone just follow the same diet plan and it's all going to be fine and the same. Yeah. yeah. How's that working for you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I find Not that very I, well. Yeah, I find the same. You have to kind of test yourself. So, you know, this podcast is all about like testing and making sure that you're doing whatever is right for your body. So it's fantastic to have you on and talk about this topic. So how many people have just like as a quick background, how many people have you interviewed on this topic over the years? And on the specific topic of ketosis, is that what you're asking? Yeah, if you know a rough, rough uh, we hit on ketosis here and there with different people. I'd say at least a couple of hundred of the almost uh, a thousand interviews that I've done, at least a couple of hundred at least have shared some pretty good nuggets of truth that did end up in my vernacular and thinking when it came to wanting to write a book about this. But uh, yeah, I've interviewed literally over a thousand people on all kinds of topics over the years, not just ketosis, but uh, obviously ketogenic diets are a huge passion of mine. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the benefits people are looking for? Just as a very quick broad stroke, if someone, one of the listeners at home hasn't kind of got into the whole ketosis and why, why to do it, on one hand, what are the benefits that people are looking for when they're trying to get into the state of ketosis? Oh, man. Do you have all day? <laughs> That's the great thing about this, Damien, is there's a lot of great science that we have, uh, both solid, good, and emerging science that we put in the back 16, 17, and 18 chapters that talk about all of the great health issues that can be improved with a ketogenic diet. But just for people that are wanting to maybe make their day-to-day -day quality of life better, check out this list of things that you have to look forward to if you get into a state of ketosis. How about this? Natural hunger and appetite control effortless weight loss and maintenance, mental clarity like you've never had before because your brain just loves ketone bodies, sounder sleep, normalized metabolism, your blood sugar gets stabilized, your insulin sensitivity is restored, inflammation levels, which we know is the real cause of heart disease. That's one of the themes that we talked about in my last book, Cholesterol Clarity. Um, it's not high cholesterol that's causing heart disease. It really is inflammation, and this diet lowers it a feeling of happiness and general well-being, your blood pressure comes down, your HDL good cholesterol goes up, your triglycerides come down, you have less of those small, dense LDL particles. You can fast spontaneously between meals upwards of 12 to 24 hours because you just ain't hungry. You use your stored body fat as fuel. You have energy beyond belief. Yes, I'm in a ketogenic state, have lots of energy. Uh, heartburn goes down. Uh, you improve your fertility and sex drive. It helps with traumatic brain injury. Uh, your immune system is improved. I could go on and on and on, but there are so many great benefits. Even if you don't have some dastardly disease, just these day-to-day -day quality of life improvements that happen from a ketogenic diet make it all worth it. Yeah, great. And you rattled out a whole bunch of markers when you were talking about this too. So that these are things people can track. What are the main things that you, when you've been talking to either your interviews or you've actually seen with people you've been consulting with their numbers, what are the main things that you've kind of rattled out there that, that change quickly and maybe change over the long time in terms of markers? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Immediately 
when you start reducing carbohydrates and replacing those carbs with more fat and getting into a state of ketosis, let's go to your cholesterol panel. Since I wrote a whole book about that one last year, here are the things that are almost instantly going to happen within like a couple weeks to a couple of months. Your triglycerides will fall like a rock. So you actually will see those go down below 100 and optimally under 70. My personal level uh, right now is like in the 40s. And then your HDL cholesterol will respond very well to the increase in saturated and monounsaturated fats that you consume. And those are the raw materials that help you make HDL cholesterol. And it will go way up. Uh, Mine is currently around 80 something. Wow. And then the small LDL particles, these are the truly atherogenic particles of your LDL that will penetrate the arterial wall. Now, a lot of people will be like, what do you mean LDL particles? Yeah, there's more than one LDL. LDL is not just one number. It's actually two major numbers. One is large fluffy LDL particles, which really are not atherogenic. They're benign when it comes to heart disease but it's those small, dense LDL particles that are the real problem. And how do you get small, dense LDL particles? It's two things. You have too many carbohydrates in your diet, and that shifts your LDL to the small kind, and you're consuming vegetable oils. It pretty much leaves your body uh, devoid of all the large fluffy. That's why vegetable oils are promoted, because it does reduce your LDL cholesterol but it reduces all the good ones and leaves you with all the bad ones and then does this nice little thing called oxidation to those LDL particles, which makes them highly inflammatory, which we just said is the real cause in heart disease. So those are some blood markers that you'll see change immediately. Now, you might see your total cholesterol go up. You might see your LDL-C number go up, but those aren't a big deal within the context of all these other numbers getting better. Now, we mentioned inflammation. There's a great marker that if you haven't had it run before, this is one I love having run because especially all these people that think my high cholesterol is going to kill me, I point to the HSCRP number. That's the C-reactive protein. It's the key inflammatory marker in the body. And if that number is below 1.0, you have nothing to worry about when it comes to inflammation. And without that inflammation, you can't have heart disease. So I think my level when I last checked it was 0.55, which is really, really good. Another one at home that I think people could have run, and this is one when I did a whole year, I did an online experiment uh, that I talked about in Keto Clarity of this uh, nutritional ketosis. What I did was I quantifiably measured weight just because people think that's interesting. I don't, but people do. Blood sugar levels and then blood ketone levels. So let's go to blood sugar. Blood sugar is a huge marker of where you stand in your metabolic health. If you've got fasting blood glucose levels that are in the triple digits, you need to get that under control and a ketogenic diet does that for you in spades. Now, it doesn't do it immediately in a lot of people. Some people say, well, I've been eating low-carb, high-fat for a week. I've got great ketone levels, but my blood sugar is still elevated. I'm like, come on. you got to give it a little bit of time. But over time, as blood ketone levels go up, your blood sugar levels will come down and even come down to levels that some might say are too low. And we can talk about this in a minute if you want to. But when you have higher levels of 
blood ketones, they step in the place of the blood sugar. So you could have a lower blood sugar that would look like hypoglycemia to most medical doctors, and yet you're completely fine. And again, we can get into that in a second. And then the last thing I wanted to mention was the blood ketones. This is kind of technology that's been out there. I had never heard of it before 2012 when I read The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance by Dr. Steve Finney and Dr. Jeff Folick, and they talked about measuring blood ketones. I'm like, what's that? The ketones are what you pee on a stick and you see, you see a urine test. Uh-uh, those are great and all for when you first start, but when you want to see how you're doing in nutritional ketosis, once you become keto-adapted, starting using that fat for fuel, then you need to be testing for blood ketones. So I did that for a whole year. It's, it's exactly like a glucometer. It takes a little bit more blood than a glucometer. And yes, I pricked my finger morning and night. It's probably no strange thing for your listeners to do that. But uh, And sometimes I did it every hour on the hour all day long. There were a couple of things you mentioned in there. I just wanted to clarify. First of all, you're talking about the LDL and the particle size. Could you specify? Because I know that most people are going to walk into their doctors or they're going to walk into most labs and they get a straightforward LDL test. And what you get given, even when you ask for it, you have to kind of really know what you're asking for in these cases because you're going to get the standard, which isn't what we're looking for here. In America, you can actually run a test that will test for the particles and you can actually go to your doctor and ask for the particle size test. Even Dr. Oz did a big show on this, asking patients to go to their doctor and asking for the particle size test. But there are some major ones that are out there that measure for the particle size. There's one I'm not a big fan of, but I know people love because it does show you the breakdown of the particles. It's called the VAP test, V-A-P. But there's another one that I'm a, a big fan of because it shows you the number of particles that you have in your LDL, and then it gives you the breakdown, and it specifically gives you a number of the small, dense LDL particles. That test is called the NMR lipoprofile test, and it's run in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, and they're basically the only lab in the whole world that does this specific test. And again, they'll spit out the total number of LDL particles that you have and then the small ones. And again, the way you get more small is you eat more carbohydrates and you consume vegetable oils. If you do those two things, you're going to have a lot more small. So that's why a low-carb, high fat of saturated and monounsaturated fats, ketogenic diet helps with that because it helps to eliminate and greatly bring down those number of small LDL particles. But the way you test for it I'm not sure how you can do it overseas, but in America, you've got the VAP test, you've got the NMR by profile test, and there's one other that's kind of coming on in the recent years called the HDL labs test, which also shows you your particle size breakdown. Great, great. So with those, people get a much clearer idea, and they can order that test from any doctor, the ones you were talking about with one lab. Yeah, literally any doctor in America that uses LabCorp which LabCorp is what every doctor uses, so they can run it. Uh, they can run this test, but they may give you pushback. That's that's kind of the frustrating part about all this is patients are trying to do the right thing to get the test run, to see where they stand, see how they're doing in their health, and yet doctors are like, well, that's unnecessary because you don't have a family history of heart disease, and that's only for the people at the greatest risk. But then they'll turn right around and say, oh, well, your total cholesterol is 230, so that's way too high. I need to put you on a statin drug. 
And that's when I would push back as a patient and say, wait, I want to have this run because this will tell me whether my LDL cholesterol is really the bad kind or if I'm okay despite having a higher level of total cholesterol. The other test I wanted to just touch on that you mentioned was the glucometer, your blood sugar. You didn't talk about the context. I know this can vary you know, a lot. Uh, so you're talking about fasting blood sugar there or are you talking about? When you do a blood sugar reading, it almost always needs to be in a fasted state. And we can talk about postprandial uh, state, but when we're talking about where you are in your blood sugar, when you wake up in the morning after an overnight fast and you haven't eaten all night, your morning blood sugar reading should be pretty steady in the 80s. That's a normal reading, definitely below 92, and you're going to be okay. Now, we can talk about postprandial and how it should be after you eat something, but you test it fasting, and then you can test for a couple of hours every 30 minutes after you eat. At the one-hour mark, you definitely should not be over 140, and after the two-hour mark, you should be back to baseline. So if you started at 85, two hours later, you should be pretty darn close to 85. If you're not, guess what? You probably ate too many carbohydrates or maybe just a tad too much protein in that meal, which is keeping your blood sugar elevated. Fat is benign when it comes to your blood sugar. It will not raise your blood sugar unless you're gorging yourself on it. And then that gorging will distend the gut and make your insulin and blood sugar go crazy. But if you're eating normal amounts of those things, it should not impact it at all. Great, great. And the other one I don't think you mentioned is HbA1c. Is that something you look at too? Yeah, I did not mention that one, but that is a ancillary one to the blood sugar one we were just talking about. Absolutely. That is a great marker. Most medical doctors say, well, get it below six. And I'm going, 5.9 is still severe insulin resistance. Why won't we aim for a much better one of how about below 5.0? Um, I had mine measured in the midst of my nutritional ketosis experiment, and I came in 4.3, wow, which is really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like really low. One of my understanding is some of these tests can have kind of confounders because when you change to a low-carb diet, like some of them will change. And I think HbA1c is one of them where your red blood cells will start living longer. So the values don't kind of match up. Some of these tests, they have confounders. Is there a lot of these tests which kind of have confounders that you have to watch for and maybe it takes longer? Like you were saying, there's a longer period you need to look at it. Or is it just a few of them? I think it's just smart to remember all of these tests are simply tools. Don't rely on them as gospel truth. I get well over 500 emails a day and people write to me and they say, oh, I just went to my doctor and I got this one test and it said this, and so now the doctor's all uh, wanting to put me on some medication or having some surgery, and I'm going, one test, really? Um, how about you give or ask for like a few more months, run that same darn test again? Why are we making treatment based on one test that could be flawed? In terms of flawed, do you mean not accurate, a bad reading, or? It could be a very bad reading, and yet they want to make changes. I'll give you a, a hard example of this. My wife, Christine, she went to see her general practitioner in November last year, and her total cholesterol came in at 240, which they think is high. Anything over 200 is high. The doctor said, well, and he knows better than to bring up the uh, statin drug thing to me. So, <laughs> so I was sitting in there, and he said, uh, Christine, I think you need to um, uh, cut your saturated fat because he thought that's what it was going to take to improve 
her numbers. And she said, well, no, I'm, I'm going to keep eating saturated fat. That's what helped me get these numbers to begin with. Cause she had great HDL, incredible triglycerides numbers and lower inflammation than she would if she was eating a standard American diet. So she said, no. And he had read my book, cholesterol clarity. And he said, well, maybe Jimmy can fix your numbers. So <laughs> challenge accepted. So I go home and guess what we do, Damien? I don't cut her saturated fat. We doubled her saturated fat. So whatever she was eating before, I had her eat twice as much saturated fat. We go back for the six-month checkup, her total cholesterol, 200. It had gone down by 40 points, and it was all in the LDL. So what she did was she shifted that small, dense LDL particles over to more of the large, fluffy LDL particles. Her HDL stayed the same. Her triglycerides stayed the same. And don't you know, he didn't say a damn thing about it. Yeah, that's amazing. There's tons of stories. And like you made some important points about um, the tests here. Uh, you've just given us a whole slew of tests. I'm sure like for some people, that's a real maze. How do you typically suggest when someone's coming and they're saying, like, I'm thinking about doing a low carb or ketogenic diet. What's the obvious place to test in order to understand if, if it's working? Well, so that they know they're getting the benefits they want. Are there the main areas like uh, my concern is diabetes? My concern is, so I don't know if there's the top three concerns and there's a couple of tests for each one that they should focus on or something like that. Well, I think what everybody should pay attention to probably more than anything else is that blood sugar level. If your blood sugar is elevated, regardless of what you think your current state of health is, you should know your blood sugar level. And it's not just for people with diabetes. This is one that frustrates me, Damien, and, and maybe our next book, it's going to be blood sugar clarity because I think people are confused about, what do you mean I have to test my blood sugar? I'm not diabetic. See, people think it's all about diabetes, but it's not. Having a normalized blood sugar level is a sign of great metabolic health. So getting that blood sugar level down and by extension, your insulin levels down, unfortunately, you can't test your insulin at home, but you can test all day, every day, your blood sugar, test, 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 and see where you stand in that blood sugar. That is a great marker to know where you stand in your metabolic health. So that's one that absolutely, I think everybody should go down to their pharmacy, pick up a glucometer and start testing your blood sugar to see where you are. If it's in that 80s range when you wake up in the morning, great. If not, then you need to start making some tweaks to your diet and supplementation. And there's things that we talk about actually in Keto Clarity that can help with that because that is a biggie. So is there anything like less, is it between 70 and 90? Is that what they're kind of aiming for? Yeah, 70 to 90 is probably pretty good. But in the context of keto, which I was alluding to earlier, sometimes it might even go lower than 70. Doesn't mean you're outside the range. Within context, if you have higher levels of blood ketones, you could have lower levels of blood sugar because the ketones kind of step into the place of where that blood sugar would be. So I wouldn't even put it in that low range of 70 to 90 because it could be below 70 and still be normal. Okay. So it's really, you got to focus on not having it over 90 is more of the emphasis. Yeah. That's probably a good thing to shoot for now. Postprandial after you've eaten something. Yeah. It's going to go up somewhat. I'll have a breakfast of eggs cooked in some butter and some sausage and my blood sugar will be 85 before. And then I'll, after an hour, it might've gone up to like 95. And then by the end of two hours, it's back to like 85, 86. Okay. 
Great. That's perfect. So you've been doing this for a long time. Now take someone who's still been eating donuts and stuff, because I guess you never eat donuts these days. Uh, no, right, right. unless they're made of bacon. Do you know what would happen to your numbers if you had a donut? Like that just you gave us an example, would it shoot up really high still? Or, you know, obviously maybe you don't know, but like, have you got an idea of what would happen now? Would it still be the same as it was 10 years ago? Yeah, I have no idea. That might be a fun N equals one experiment. <laughs> Although I, I wouldn't look forward to eating a donut. My wife might like that. But <laughs> uh, yeah. to be honest, I have no idea. But I would assume that because I had this problem before where that would spike my blood sugar, that it would still act the same way now. I don't want the post, uh, the way I would feel after eating that, forget what happens to blood sugar. I don't want to feel like crap. <laughs> and I definitely would eating that just based on past experience. Great, great. So you're just saying if everyone focused on the blood sugar, that's a pretty good area to focus on no matter where you're coming at. Yes. For this ketogenic diet. Correct. And I think that one we mentioned earlier about the CRP level, the HSCRP, everybody needs to know your level of inflammation. If you're above 2.0 on that, you probably need to do something to bring down the inflammation in your life. And for a lot of people, it is those processed and refined carbohydrates uh, that are primarily doing that. And even the so-called healthy whole grains are also causing that inflammation to go up and the vegetable oils eliminating those from your diet, your inflammation should come way down. And you can see that in your HSCRP. Now there's more that impacts that inflammation than just those two food items. If you're highly stressed, that's also going to show up on your HSCRP. So run that number. Optimally, you want it under 1.0, definitely under 2.0. And anything above that shows that you have problems. And that's an easy test to run too. I think it's like 60 bucks if you run it on your own or your doctor can run it for you. Right, right. I'm glad you brought up that test because that's the test I've been running for the longest, probably about since 2004 or something when I first learned about it. And it's been interesting to see how mine's changed over time. I think mine's like 0.1 wow. these days. I'm jealous. Whenever I test it. Sometimes it's 0.0 or something. It depends on the lab because I don't think all the labs actually have the high sensitivity to be actual say it's like less than 0.1. Yeah, you definitely need to have the HS. Right. That's an important point I wanted to make because there's a lot of the CRP test still out there. Maybe not so much in uh, the US. I haven't had so much problems when I'm testing in the US, but when I test abroad, they'll sometimes give you the C-reactive protein, which only measures down to one. And so you don't have any idea how good you are if you're doing well. You can just say, oh, like I'm doing bad, I'm over one, which isn't that helpful. Now, you mentioned you wanted a third test. And the third one, I think, besides blood sugar and CRP, is absolutely your triglycerides. If your triglycerides are over 100, and we mentioned this in Keto Clarity, if your triglycerides are over 100, that means you are eating too many carbohydrates in your diet. So that's one way you can figure out how sensitive you are to carbohydrates is by looking at that triglycerides number. Get it below 100 and you're in nirvana. That's where you want to be optimally under 70, but definitely under 100. Your doctor might say, well, 140, oh, that's normal. And he won't even bat an eye. But 140 is, again, showing signs of insulin resistance. So you've got to get that number down, down, down. And the way you do that is cut the carbs. So definitely uh, that's a great trifecta of tests that if you wanted to kind of track your progress to see how you're doing in your whole health, those three are probably the standard bearers. Great. Thank you for clearing that up. That makes it a lot more simpler to follow. 
So we're trying to get into ketosis. And a lot of people call, say this, they say that you're becoming a fat burner. And I think that can be a little bit confusing for some people. They say a sugar burner, a fat burner, these are kind of some of the terminology that's used. Is that what's actually happening in your body? How do you look at the mechanism for this when you start eating less carbs and you start increasing the fat? What's going on in your body here, the main metabolic change or what's happening here? Yeah, I think it's a great imagery for people to realize that the body can be fueled by fat. That's going to be a new concept to a lot of people because you ask people, what is it that fuels the body? Most people are going to say, uh, well, uh, you drink Gatorade and, and that replenishes your body with electrolytes and it gives you the energy and blah, blah, blah. And that's when you're a sugar burner. So I think it's easy for people to understand that a lot of people are sugar burners. But when we start talking ketosis, we want to change the terminology to make people realize sugar is not the only way you can fuel your body. So saying that you're a fat burner kind of gives it, uh, and yes, it's very layman's term. Uh, that's kind of my style of writing and my style of educating is to make it a little simpler. But here's what happens. You're shifting your body from using glucose as the primary fuel source over to using fat as the primary fuel source. And so when you cut off the carbohydrate content of your diet and limit that so that you're not raising your blood glucose levels, and then you're limiting your protein, which we can talk about why you do that here in a minute, but you limit your protein also so that you're limiting the glucose effect, and then you're eating more fat, then the body has to do something. It has to switch from being a sugar burner to one that burns fat and then the resulting ketone bodies that come from that as fuel. So yeah, I think it's a great way for people to understand sugar is not the only way to feed your body and fuel your body. You actually can make that switch over to being mostly a fat burner. So are you saying that any fat we eat will turn into ketones that we're going to burn or is it a bit more complicated like you're saying? Uh, certainly you want to try to find the best quality fats. I mean, you could certainly drink vegetable oils and produce ketones. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that by the way, <laughs> if you want to keep your inflammation levels down. So yeah, I mean, they are the raw materials by which ketones are made. So cutting your carbs is definitely a huge must. And we talked about this at the very beginning. I used to think just because I cut my carbs on my Atkins diet, that that was producing ketones. Well, that's only one thing that you do. You cut carbs to your personal tolerance level. You moderate down the protein to your individualized protein threshold. And we can talk about that if you want. And then you eat fat to satiety. The saturated and monounsaturated fats are primarily what we're talking about. Of course, the omega-3 fats are in there as well. And when you do that, those things are the raw materials that make switch over from sugar burner to fat burner. And it's that burning of fat that results in the production of ketones. Okay. And then you can test for ketone levels to see if you're actually in the fat burning mode or not. Is that the idea? Absolutely. And currently there are three different ways that you can measure for ketone levels. One that I really hate, uh, one that is the gold standard and one that is the future of testing. So you want to talk about that? Yeah. First of all, like you've kept on bringing up the confounder of the protein. So I'd like to kind of get that out of the way before. There's so um, much we'll, to we'll say. Jump into that. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there's a lot of confounders, basically. It's not easy stuff. So if I'm eating a ton of protein every day, what's happening? Why is that not going to put me in ketosis? Yeah, this is the big confounder. And this is probably arguably the biggest mistake people have been making in their low carb diet when they say, well, I tried that low carb thing and my blood sugar never came down and I gained weight and I could never get my hunger under control and blah, blah, blah. 
this is why. When you consume protein in excess, there's this real long G word that we talk about in Keto Clarity. It's called gluconeogenesis. Now, don't let that long word scare you. All it means is when you consume more protein than your body can use, the liver has to convert that protein into sugar. So while it's not a one-for-one thing like you would be eating carbohydrates and raising your blood sugar, it's still producing sugar in the body. And when there is glucose present, sugar present in the blood, guess what that does to ketone levels? It kills them. They're gone. And so that's why moderating down on the protein is so critical. Don't fall for the media headlines that say that low-carb, high-protein diet. Uh Uh-uh. It's a low-carb, moderated protein to your individualized threshold level, high-fat diet, And that is what will get you into ketosis. People eat chicken breast every day, Damien, and they're like, it's low carb. Yeah, it's low carb, but it is loaded with a lot of protein. That is not a health food. Even if you drench it in butter in the pan, it's still giving you a huge, big bolus of protein. Moderate down the protein, either use less of it or choose the fattiest cuts of it. Yeah, great. So that's one mechanism. Is that very individual, like the carbs? Do people have different protein tolerances as well? Absolutely. And think about it this way. If you're really sensitive to carbohydrates, like I am, I used to weigh 400 plus pounds. So I have a little bit of problem with carbohydrates. I've often joked that I've already eaten all the carbs I'm allowed to have my entire (laughs) life, the first 32 years of my life. So I have to keep them low the rest of my life. That's probably not true. But anyway, so yeah, if you're sensitive to carbohydrates, you're going to be sensitive to the protein as well because of that gluconeogenesis. Because when you have a a low sensitivity to carbs, it means your body very quickly starts making this glucose and wants to become a sugar burner again. Uh, So that will happen with the protein. If you start eating in excess, having a chicken breast, blah, 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 then that's going to convert to sugar. And very quickly, your body will be like, ooh, you're giving us glucose. Let's use that for energy. And it will get away from being a fat burner, which is counterproductive for what you're trying to do being in a state of ketosis. Great, great. So the other mechanism, just wanted to look at before we look at how you measure ketosis and know that you're actually getting into this state. People talk about also taking fats to push you into ketosis. So actually consuming more. People often talk about this in the context of taking some MCT oil or some other specific fats. Could you talk a little bit about how that works? If I'm eating some regular diet in the morning and then maybe... I test I'm not in ketosis and I have some fats. How how does that work? There are definitely supplements out there that you can take that will temporarily boost your ketone levels. So you mentioned one of them, MCT oil, medium chain triglycerides. These are readily made into ketone bodies. So if you take some of this and be careful not to take too much of it because it will give you a stomach upset in excess. But if you take some MCT oil, Within like 30 minutes, you could test your blood ketones and you're going to have really high levels of ketones. And you might think, oh, wow, this is easy. Why am I cutting my carbs? Well, the only problem with that is it temporarily raises blood ketone levels. It's just a transient thing. So it could be helpful for people that are using it for, I know some athletes that get into ketosis and like to be fat burners and use ketones for fuel. This is a great thing for an athlete to use maybe before an athletic performance. Great to do that. Or if they're doing it for therapeutic purposes, let's say you're an Alzheimer's patient, 
and you're trying to get more ketones in there for the therapeutic effects from that, I think MCT oil is a perfect thing for people like that. But for the average everyday person that's probably listening to your podcast right now, it's best to do it nutritionally by getting your carbs to that personal tolerance level, moderating down that protein like we just talked about and eating more real food-based fats like butter, coconut oil, lard, full-fat meats and cheeses, cream, that kind of thing. That's going to give you the therapeutic effects of real nutritional ketosis without artificially raising them with these supplements. And the idea behind that is that you're saying it's temporary and it's not going to last very long. Whereas Very transient, yeah. It doesn't give you a true accurate picture. Are you aiming to stay in ketosis the most amount of time or are you aiming for the highest levels or is it a combination of both? Maybe this hasn't been discovered yet, but what is the ideal you should be aiming for? There really isn't any studies that have been done on a long term of doing this. I try to stay in it all the time because I feel best when I'm in a state of nutritional ketosis pretty much as much as I can. It's very easy because of my tolerance levels being so low. It's easy for me to get out of it. So I don't want to be out of it. So I have to work really hard to make sure that I'm in it. Now, you asked about levels, uh, trying to get levels higher and higher. Your goal is not necessarily super duper high. Optimally, what you're trying to do is get over 1.0 on that blood ketone monitor. And if you're over 1.0, that's the level that I feel the most benefits starting to really kick in. Now, Volick and Finney in their book talked about between 0.5 and 3.0 kind of being the range, but I found anything over 1.0 probably is going to give you the most therapeutic bang for your buck. And I didn't really see any reason to go too much over 2.0. Now you can go over 2.0 and I have, in fact, the highest reading I've ever had was 6.7 on the blood ketone monitor. My blood sugar at the time was 62 and I felt completely fine. But the goal is not necessarily higher being better, just steady within a good range of somewhere between like one to three. Right. As with most things, it's probably some kind of U-curve. You get benefits in a certain area, but you know if you're gonna push it to crazy heights, something else could go wrong that we don't understand yet. And there's no need to do that if you don't have to. The only thing I can think of is if you get your levels to higher amounts like that, it gives you a little more wiggle room to maybe have a few more carbohydrates or a few more grams of protein than you otherwise would because, all right, it's going to knock it down a little bit and that may not be a bad thing. Right, right, right. So it's literally like a ratio in your blood. When there's more ketones, then it's hard for the blood sugar to get raised. Correct. Which is, I guess, sometimes where people are using this MCT thing as well to help help them along. Yeah. Great. Well, and unfortunately, the MCT oil doesn't necessarily bring down the blood sugar though. Because people are like, well, my blood ketones are 4.5 and yet my blood sugar is 105. And I'm going, did you take MCT oil? They're like, well, of course. And I went, well, of course, your body hasn't really adapted to using those ketones and making those ketones. You just basically infuse ketones into your body. That doesn't mean that your blood sugar levels are going to just automatically come down. That's why I believe nutritionally, doing it nutritionally is going to give you the best benefits because you will eventually see that blood sugar go down as you nutritionally raise your blood ketones. Right. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is you have to get the blood sugar down because that's causing damage. Basically, that's, that's a negative. That's right. And until you get rid of the negative, then you know, you're not going to get all these benefits. Although you might feel a bit better if you've got more ketones running in, in terms of energy. And I think it takes time in a lot of people. When I first started doing this, I had been low carb for a while, 
but not purposely ketogenic. So during my experiment that year that I uh, did the experiment, it took probably three to four months before my blood sugar came to a level where it was naturally in the 80s range in the fasted state. It took some time to be able to get that under control. And and that's okay. I think that's part of the healing process. Yeah, nothing's going to be achieved in one day, especially if you've been doing it for 20 years. Exactly. Okay, great. So I understand that it's a little bit complicated. There are a few different measures with different accuracy and that. That's one of the things you look to get to clarity, trying to get to the bottom of it. Well, first of all, it would be great to have a bit of background on what you achieve now. Like, do you know how much time you spend in ketosis since you see that as the most important? Like, are you 90% of the time when you test? Are you in ketosis and when do you slip out? What is the, the kind of standard after you've been on a ketogenic diet for like, yeah, I don't guess three months? Is it relatively easy to be in that zone for 90% of the time? Yeah. People ask that question all the time. Oh my gosh, if I have one carb-based meal, is it going to knock me out of ketosis and I got to go all through this all over again? One thing I found, Damien, is that once you're in ketosis and then you have some indiscretion that knocks you out of it, you can get back into it really, really quick. So I know that sometimes I'll be in a situation where maybe I have a little more protein than I typically do, and that will completely kill the ketones. Well, it takes me about two to three days and I'm right back in the ketosis again. So no, it doesn't take long. I think that initial period that people try to get adapted is going to depend on their carb intake before starting. So when I started this, I was already pretty low carb, having been low carb for a long time, just not ketogenic. So all I did was up the fat more and moderate the protein. And within four days, I was in nutritional ketosis. For somebody like the old Jimmy Moore, who used to eat 16 cans of Coca-Cola a day and two boxes of Little Debbie snack cakes a day, (laughs) was a carbohydrate-addicted mess, that man might take two or three months before he got into a state of ketosis because his body would have to deal with all that first. So yeah, I think it's going to depend very highly on the individual. All right, great. So why should we test for ketosis? Because we just spoke about the important thing is reducing the blood sugar to make sure that's in line. Why do you see it as important also to test for ketosis? You're flying blind if you don't. You will assume like Jimmy Moore did in 2012 that I thought I was being ketogenic simply because my carbs were low. You can't assume anything. You have to test to know where you stand. And so when I tested that first time, Damien, and I pricked my finger and I got the blood reading that said 0.3 and Volick and Finney said it needed to be between 0.5 and 3.0, I went, ah, crap. <laughs> now, now I see why I'm having some issues going on here. So without testing, you're just simply guessing whether you're actually in ketosis or not. Now, you could be super duper strict in your carbohydrates and get your protein down to some arbitrary number and eat more fat and probably most people that would make them ketogenic. But unless you're testing, you have no earthly idea. And when you first start, there's probably the easiest way when you first start only for the first couple of weeks. I think if you want to see where you are in your ketosis, Go buy those urine strips. They're called keto sticks. They're about $15 for a a little thing of 50 of them. And you can actually test to see how you're doing spilling a ketone body that's known as acetoacetate. So you measure for that acetoacetate and it'll turn pink to purple on the pee stick. And if you show any color change, then you are producing ketones. So that's a great kind of reinforcement for a lot of people when they first get started. Unfortunately, they don't always stay in the urine. So that acetoacetate 
actually gets converted over into the blood ketone body, that one is called, that ketone is called beta hydroxybutyrate. And so that's the one that's like free flowing in the body. When we say your body is running on ketones, that's the one that we're talking about is beta hydroxybutyrate. So measuring directly for that with a ketone meter, the one that I love that I think is just the best one in the whole world is called Precision Extra. Now, the strips are extremely expensive. We talk about this in the book, how you can get them on the cheap and where to get them. But man, oh man, that gives you great information. So what kind of price are we talking just to give people a rough? The meter itself is about 15 to $20, but the strips in the States can cost as much as 3 to $5 a piece. And how many do you use? Because you were saying before you were testing every morning and every Well, evening. yeah, during my experiment, I tested morning and evening and sometimes every hour on the hour. So yes, it got quite expensive. And I'll tell you about a cheaper alternative that may be pretty good here in a second. But you can go to Google and type in Canadian Pharmacy and some of those uh, Canadian pharmacies have the strips for about $2 a piece. I did see down in Australia, they sell them very cheaply, but there's no online place for people to buy them. I think they're like 70 cents a piece there. Just to be clear, you use one strip every time. Yeah. So you're saying it's $2 a piece. So that's, uh, that's pretty expensive. It's going to add up quickly. But if you're a quantified selfer and you want to see where you're going with this, that is worth it. And keep in mind, you're not doing this forever. I mean, I think if you did it for a morning and night for two to three weeks, just to see what it takes, I think after a while, you kind of know, you can kind of feel, okay, I'm in a state of ketosis or not. That's an interesting point. Are you able now to associate with the way you're feeling with certain aspects of your being now that you've been measuring for a while? Can you... Oh yeah. Let me finish the ketone story and then I'll answer that one. So that's blood. And I think blood is probably the, still the very best way that you can test the third ketone body though. This is the one that's coming in the future. It's called acetone. It's the one in the breath. That is the ketone body in the breath. And they're actually coming out with these things that you can blow into. So people are a little squeamish about pricking their finger. You can just blow into these devices and they'll give you your ketone reading of acetone. Now, acetone, unlike acetoacetate, which gets converted over to beta-hydroxybutyrate and some people lose acetone on the urine, breath ketones actually correlate pretty darn well in a couple of good studies with the beta-hydroxybutyrate levels in the blood. So... If you're testing for breath, it's not a one-for-one one thing because all these ketone bodies have different mechanisms and different times that they're operating in the body, but it's pretty close. And people that don't like the prick, it's good. And then it's less expensive. Right now, there's one meter on the market called Ketonics. Uh, it's this guy with epilepsy in Sweden that developed this, and it's pretty darn close. I actually tested it side-by-side side with blood ketones and urine ketones for about six or eight months. And I found for about 80% of the time, the ketonics was spot on. Now, I did find that it was much more accurate in the morning after an overnight fast. Don't eat or drink anything within four hours of blowing into it because apparently drinking and eating washes out some of the breath ketones out of the mouth. So you want to make sure that you're not skewing the results by eating or drinking. But uh, that's technology that is definitely developing. There's a lot more companies that are working on meters. Are there slips with that? Is there a variable cost involved or is it just the one-off meter cost and you can use that indefinitely? The Ketonics one 
it's this little device that you just blow into and yeah, you can blow into it thousands of times. So it's not a one-off. Some of the ones that I know are in development are disposable. And so, but they're a lot more accurate, apparently. We'll know when they come out. <laughs> yeah. Are these coming out really quickly? Are you expecting over the next year, a lot of different ones to come out? Well, so the one uh, that I'm aware of in Arizona, it's a company called Invoid Technologies. They actually are going through the FDA approval process right now. And as soon as the FDA gives them the go ahead, they'll be ready to roll. They're hoping by this fall. And I know Japanese researchers are working on an iPhone app that would be this apparatus you plug into your iPhone and then you'll blow into it and it gives you a reading on your iPhone. So I don't know when that one will be developed, but I know in the next couple of years, we're going to be seeing a lot more acetone readers coming on the market. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the great news because I know people don't like the finger pricking all the time as well as the, you know, the pretty high cost. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't use the glucometer all that <laughs> much because of that. One thing I wanted to clear up for the audience is that you've got the ketones coming out of your breath and out of your urine. Is this your body throwing these away? And so we're using the proxies of something that's throwing away and that's why it's not working over time in the urine or, you know, what's the kind of mechanism here? Ideally, we definitely want to know what the blood level is because that's the end result. Right. And so when you're using ketones in your body, yeah, absolutely. That, that's a great point. I'm really glad you brought that up. When you're spilling them over into your urine, yeah, that's what the body is kind of saying, okay, we don't need these and it's getting rid of them. Yes. And so it's a very transient and that's why that acetoacetate is getting converted into beta-hydroxybutyrate after a while, you don't see the acetoacetate anymore because the ketones have made that shift. You've gone from sugar burner to fat burner. When you're still making that transition, the body's like, ooh, it's giving me what I want to be able to convert these ketones uh, in the urine, acetoacetate, over to beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood. So yeah, absolutely, they're waste product, but it's a transitionary type of thing. So that sounds like a positive thing. If your urine stops producing these, it actually means that you've adapted metabolically to burning ketones properly. That's exactly right. And that's why testing blood is so critical because you could pee on a urine stick and see no ketones. That could mean one of two things, one very bad thing or one very good thing. The very bad thing is you're still not in ketosis and you're not making ketones in the blood or you're in great ketosis, you become fully keto adapted, you've now shifted all of your acetoacetate over into beta-hydroxybutyrate, and that's a very good thing. Now, the problem with this, Damien, is it only happens in some people. Others, and, and myself included, I show ketones on the pea sticks basically all the time. I don't ever not show it. So I'm one of those people who shows both acetoacetate in the urine and blood ketones, and that's okay too. I think it's more important to know what your level of ketones are in the blood because that's the actual one that really matters. Is that exactly the same measure? Are they gonna give you, like you gave us the 1.0 reference there. Do they give you the correlated or do they give you another measure that you then have to kind of map? Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way uh, because it's not the same ketone body. There's just a correlation there. So when they've done the studies, they show that when your level of blood ketones are at a certain level, the acetoacetate is also at a corresponding level. Unfortunately, those levels aren't spot on perfect, 
but they're pretty darn close. And from a cost effectiveness, I'd rather blow into this device that costs a hundred dollars and it be kind of close 80% of the time than to necessarily break the bank testing blood. But if you can afford it, definitely do the blood more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like the testing strategy would be like, as soon as you want to do this for the first month, you can probably do the urine one without any concern or, or do some people adapt quickly? My strategy would be, yeah, use the urine test for the first week. See if you're even producing ketones. And if you start to see color change on there, then go grab you a blood ketone monitor. And then if you want to do it on the cheap, you can use eight total strips within a month. And here's how you do it. Sometime during the week, measure in the morning. So when you wake up in the morning before you drink or eat or do anything, go to the bathroom, but, but before you do anything that you would ingest, prick your finger and see what your blood ketone level is. It's probably going to be lowest in the morning, highest in the evening, but test that one time in the morning, sometime during the week. So let's say you choose Tuesday morning to test. So test it and write that down. Then some other time during the week, test at night. So let's say you choose Saturday night. So you'll test on Saturday night at night, at least four hours after eating or drinking anything and test and see. And again, that number should be higher at night than it was in the morning. It's not always true with everybody, but that's the general correlation. And then do the same thing again the next week, the next week, the next week. So over a month period, you get to see the trend of how you're doing in the morning, how you're doing in the evening. And over time, you'll be able to see how well you're doing in your state of nutritional ketosis. That's eight strips. And even if you paid $4 a piece for those, that's still about $32. Not as bad as pricking your finger every single day, morning and night, and breaking the bank. Great. Thank you so much for that. It's very valuable. And then would you move over to acetone in the breath? Yeah, as a maintenance strategy, once you kind of get going with this blood ketone thing for a while and you're like me and you can kind of sense where you are, I can almost within a few uh, tenths of a millimolar, I can pretty much tell you what my level of ketosis on a blood ketone meter is now, just how I feel. In terms of that feeling, what is it? Is it like an energy feeling or is it something else? Well, the energy you're going to have being in a state of ketosis, that definitely is a big one. The mental clarity, the hunger control is a big one. But I'm talking about just kind of uh, intangible type of feelings like in my mouth. When I wake up in the morning, I can almost tell just by it's not really a film or anything, but just kind of the feeling on my tongue. I can just feel that I've got a lot of ketones going on. And it's a beautiful thing. I've been doing this a while, Damien. It's kind of cool that I don't really have to prick, but then I do prick my finger and it's 1.4. And I'm going, wow, okay, yeah, I felt it right. <laughs> I was interested if you uh, have looked into fasting and intermittent fasting and any kind of impacts that that has on the ketosis. Oh yeah, we did a whole chapter on just this topic in Keto Clarity because, and the F word, it's the other F word because some people don't like the word fasting. And yet this is one thing that I found it doesn't have to be forced. In fact, when I first started doing my testing, my wife, Christine looked over at me one day and she said, when's the last time you ate? So I look up at the clock and I noticed it had been 24 hours since my last meal. And I went, uh, it was yesterday. I guess I could eat something. You totally forget to eat because it is so satisfying. The hunger is under control. So I've never been a fan of intermittent fasting before I started doing this uh, nutritional ketosis thing. What I found is if you allow your body to do it naturally in response to your satiety signals, 
being under control, not having hunger to me, Damien is a great sign of metabolic health. I think if you're doing it naturally, don't starve yourself. I mean, people say, well, I could never do intermittent fasting because I don't like being hungry. It's not about being hungry. It's about allowing your body to kind of basically use your fat for fuel. And so you do that by allowing your body to eat the fat that's on your body. And the way you do that is not giving it more energy to deal with in the interim. So that's why intermittent fasting is so incredibly important. Have you seen anything interesting from the measurements of the ketosis uh, when you're fasting? Is there any difference that you like you see or in typical scenarios of fasting, which compares to when you're eating fats on a typical diet? Yeah. One thing you'll see is that's a great way to raise your ketone levels. The reason why is people are eating so often because they're just eating by the clock. So it's seven o'clock in the morning. Oh, it's breakfast time. So they eat. And then noon comes around. Oh, it's noon, so it's lunch time. So then they eat. And then supper comes at 5 36 o'clock. And oh, it's supper time. And so they eat. So they're constantly eating and they're never allowing their body to really tap into those energy stores that are on their body. Even if you're eating low carb, high fat, you need to give your body some of those times between the meals to be able to make the ketones and utilize the ketones. And one thing to remember is if you're getting hungry that quick after eating, so like you ate at seven and then you have to eat again at noon, five hours later, you didn't eat enough fat or enough food in that earlier meal. So try bumping up the fat, making sure your carbs and protein are where they need to be, but try bumping up the fat earlier in that meal, earlier in the day, and then maybe skip that noon meal and then eat again at six o'clock. Now that is a great sign of metabolic health. All right. So would you say most people could eat twice per day and that would be twice per day, once or twice a day is yeah. about the pattern that I fall into most days. Once per day, once or twice a day. That's great to hear. I, you know, I've been doing this for a while too. And I, I'm like, I forget to eat a lot and I find that I get a lot of work done. Yeah, <laughs> so. absolutely. You become more productive. And to me, that's money. <laughs> Time is money, they say, but that really does make you much more productive in your day, if you don't have to sit there and constantly think about food, think about all these people, Damien, when they go eat, what's the thing they talk about when they're done eating? Gee, I wonder what I'm going to have for lunch after they had breakfast. Gee, I wonder what I'm going to have for dinner and they're just done with lunch. So people are always thinking about food. Let's get away from thinking about food and going to more important things. For sure. It's, it's, it's very distracting. So when you fast and you take fat, because like some people talk about like you're fasting and then, for example, you have some fat while you're in that fast and they kind of count that still within the fast. Is that how you look at it? No, uh, because technically a fast is going without food. And so if you're giving your body nutrition, I assume you're referring to like bulletproof coffee. Uh, yeah, for example. Yeah, so for example. And so, yeah, some people actually write to me. In fact, I just got an email from a lady. So am I still in a fast if I'm having bulletproof coffee? I'm like, well, technically a fast is no nutrition at all, no food or anything. So no, but I don't think you'll necessarily lose your ketones doing that because like we said earlier, carbohydrates will raise blood glucose, which would kill your ketones. Protein in excess will raise your glucose, which will kill your ketones. But fat is pretty much benign on blood glucose levels. And so you should not lose your ketones. So yeah, it's a good strategy. And especially if you think you're going to feel a little bit peckish and need to eat a little something, definitely have that. I'm personally no fan, Damien, of coffee in general. So I don't do that. I would much rather just have the butter straight up. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's good to hear. Butter has a bit of protein in it. Do you make the difference between like ghee and other pure sources of fat versus the ones that have a bit of protein in it? Is this something uh, you think about when you're eating or you advise certain people with like maybe more difficulty than others should think about that kind of thing? Well, if people are sensitive to to dairy in general, I think they should be very careful with that. So definitely that's where foods like ghee and coconut oil step in to help those people. But if you don't have a sensitivity to dairy, certainly butter is okay. I've never thought about the protein content of butter because it's so overwhelmingly high in fat, uh, especially saturated fat, which is what I want. Yep. Yeah, yeah, great. I just wanted to look at some like very typical scenarios of when, when people are doing this and what kind of challenges they come across or you've kind of gone through the typical one where it, like it's pretty straightforward to get in ketosis but what are the common troubleshooting that might come up and you know they're not getting into ketosis based on the measurements we've just been talking about what are the biggest things that they should be kind of looking for that might be getting in the way oh man they're, they're doing it all wrong <laughs> <laughs> and, and we kind of touched on this already um, the, one of the big ones that we talked about in the book that I think bears repeating over and over and over again is that protein thing. Don't overdo it on the protein. And some people are like, well, I'm only eating 150 grams of protein. And I heard that one uh, kilogram, one gram per kilogram of body weight or one gram per pound or whatever the different calculations that they have. That's a big one though. Maybe you're using too much protein in your diet and that's going to challenge you. And you're going to be like, well, dang, I can't get into ketosis because it's always low and it's probably that protein. All right. So that's the biggest one. That's the number one. That is the biggest one. I think if people, whatever amount of protein they're having and they're not seeing ketones, obviously make sure your carbs are dialed in because I think that's an obvious choice, uh, an obvious thing to look at, but the protein dialing it in that has helped so many people. I've already gotten this book's been out a couple of weeks and I've already gotten more emails from people that said, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for telling me about the protein moderation. I've been stuck for two and a half years. I've been stuck forever. My blood sugar. In fact, this was kind of a cool one. My blood sugar was between 98 and 105 fasting blood sugar. All I did was moderate down my protein by about 15 to 20 grams from what I was eating. And now it's 85 it made all the difference in the world. So don't neglect that one. And then we also talked about how people are using urine ketones to test. And we've already explained why that's a bad thing. And you might want to take another look at the blood ketones. Uh, saturated fat and monounsaturated fat. I think we've become so, so fat phobic in our culture that even people that know those things aren't harmful to their health, maybe in the back of their mind, they go, well, if low carb is good, maybe I should back off a little bit on my fats. No, you need to probably eat more fat than you've ever eaten in your entire life. Could you give us an example just to make it kind of concrete, like, I don't know, five sticks of butter or whatever you want to put it into terms, like so people can get, because I know that like not eating enough fat is one of the issues, which I think is what you're pointing out. Well, and again, it's going to go back to the individual. So for me, I have to keep my carbs very low. So that's around 30 grams a day. And I have to keep my protein moderated at a pretty low level of around 80 grams a day. And so everything else in my diet has to be comprised of fat. And depending on how many times I eat in a day, if I'm eating twice in a day, obviously it's not going to be as much in that one meal as it would be 
in two meals, but one meal a day, you need to get all of your calories in, in that one meal. And I think when you skimp on the fat, you do several things. You don't give your body enough of the materials that would keep you satiated. So you don't have to eat again. And then you're not able to produce the ketones that you would want to produce as well. And then you get into a hypocaloric state, which brings on some of the negative side effects that people say about ketosis, that it damages your thyroid and all this other nonsense that's put out there. All that is, is you're not eating enough calories and it goes back to the fat thing. So for me, if I'm making a meal, let's go back to that egg meal I was talking about earlier. So I would cook, say, four eggs cooked in butter. I would put cheese on top of that. Then I would have an avocado on the side of that. I would have sour cream and then maybe some sausage. Now that's a whole lot of fat. That is a mostly fat right there. And it's a moderated amount of protein and very few carbohydrates. Most of the carbs are from the avocado. But that is what I know I need to do in order to produce the ketones, to feel satisfied, to have all those benefits that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. All those benefits come because I eat that kind of a meal. Great. Yeah. I think that's eye-opening for a lot of people who haven't been doing this for a while. It is, it is a lot that you have to get through. Have you ever seen any negatives from consuming this much fat, like people's like measurements or uh, biomarkers or anything goes wrong in some areas? Is there anything to look out for on a negative side? Well, the doctor will think it's wrong, but your LDL will probably go up, that LDLC number we were talking about earlier, and your total cholesterol will also possibly go up, not in everybody, but definitely in a certain segment of the population. And keep in mind that when you're still losing weight, don't be doing any testing because your body's in a transient position at that point. You'll have some levels of cholesterol and different other markers that may, in that interim, while you're losing weight, while fat is being mobilized in the body, may show up on these tests as a false negative. So if you're losing weight, get weight stable for a few months and then go get tested and you'll have a much more accurate picture. So yeah, your doctor may- That's a very good point. Yeah, your doctor may see some funky things on your panel and say, oh, well, you have a statin drug deficiency. Let's give you Lipitor for that high cholesterol. Uh-uh, that's not necessarily true. And definitely read my book, Cholesterol Clarity, if you want to know the whole story about that. But uh, yeah, that's definitely a, a very good point. Thank you for bringing this up. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to make sure we covered any of those downsides. I had very high LDLs and I got told the same story by a doctor. <laughs> so I think it's not uncommon. I think a lot of people have walked into a doctor's with high LDL when they start eating differently like this. So expect it, basically. So I just want to ask you a few rounding off questions now. Thank you for, you know, it's been a very thorough uh, review of all the ins and outs. Who do you look at besides yourself to talk about these types of topics or other health related topics in terms of who have kind of a good data vision and on it and like other people that you've learned from or that you respect or that you look at? Well, I'm going to turn to my co-author first because I think he's one of the leading voices on behalf of ketogenic diets. His name is Dr. Eric Westman. He's a researcher at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and has been using this in research and practically with patients uh, for over a decade and a half now. And he's been doing some really great work over the years, which I'm very honored that he decided to join uh, little old me in writing books about these subjects. But uh, he's a great, uh, a great one that I think uh, more people should know about. 
but he's not alone. And I mentioned earlier, there were two other researchers that had written the, uh, some books as well, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Living, Low-Carbohydrate Performance. They also co-wrote the book with my co-author, Dr. Eric Westman, The New Atkins for a New You. They're the low-carb researchers, Dr. Steve Finney and Dr. Jeff Volick, doing some really fantastic work. And keep an eye on them in the coming years because they're doing a lot of work with ketogenic diets and athletic performance. You might have heard about LeBron James cutting his carbs and getting in better shape since the end of the NBA season. That's huge. Guess how he did it? A ketogenic diet. So we're seeing more and more of these things happening in our mainstream culture, and it's the influence of these researchers like this. Now, besides the United States, you can go around the world. In Sweden, you've got Dr. Annika Dahlquist. Dr. Andreas Einfeld down in South Africa. You've got Professor Tim Noakes, who's doing some really good work over in the UK. You've got Dr. John Briffa, and you got Zoe Harkum. All kinds of people literally around the world are using this approach to help improve the health of their patients and of their clients. It really is catching on like fire, and I'm really privileged to kind of be on the forefront of this ketogenic diet movement. Great, great. Thanks. That's a great list. Um, we'll make sure to have all of those in the show notes. What would be your number one recommendation of one piece of data someone should track in this area if they want to keep an eye on it? Blood sugar. <laughs> you knew that's what I was going to yeah. say. Blood sugar. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good for reinforcement. Anyway. Absolutely. I, yeah, I can't emphasize blood sugar enough. I think everybody right here, right now, listening to your podcast, if you do not own a glucometer, go to the store and get one. Measure your blood sugar do it when you wake up in the morning, and if it's over that 90, 92 level, you probably need to make a few changes to something, and definitely a ketogenic diet will help you get it lower and into that better range. Great. Thanks very much. So are there any other data metrics that you track? What do you track currently, routinely, like once a month, once a week, once every day? What is your ongoing measurement cycle? Yeah, because I did that test for a whole year, I don't really like to test too often unless I'm actively doing an experiment. I know I do test blood sugar pretty often. I also test ketones with that breath meter I was telling you about. I do that every single day now. I do step on the scale, not because I think there's any inherent uh, good or bad that comes from seeing where your weight is, but I think it's a good marker to keep an eye on. So I do, it's very easy to step on a scale and you can see where you stand. Um, I don't let it mess with me psychologically. If it's up, okay, whatever. If it's down, okay, whatever. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really mean anything, but it does kind of let you know, okay, something's going on in the body that might be making weight fluctuate. And then when I do blood tests, I do like to run that CRP to know where I stand. I do like to run triglycerides, like we mentioned earlier, but I'm one of those people that I've done so much testing. I almost kind of know where I stand that I don't get so obsessive about it that I feel like I have to do it all the time. I think if you do a once or twice a year, a whole body analysis, that's probably going to be enough for most people. Right, right. That's great. So you do a, a list of, sounds like mostly the blood tests, right? You're just doing once every six months, six months. Yep. Like thyroid, cholesterol. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you said, the things like CRP and, and these things, you don't see them vary that much. If you've been living the same kind of lifestyle, it shouldn't really be jumping around or, or doing anything anyway. But it could be a precursor of something happening. So that's why it's important to run it and to kind of see is anything kind of bloop off the charts. Now, that doesn't mean one reading should make you upset. But that one reading, if something's off, OK, get that same reading again within six months and let's see how you're doing. 
Yeah. And I just remembered a confounder we didn't talk about because this happened to me is like yeah. uh, I fell on my ass and broke my coccyx. Yeah. And then unfortunately, Ow. one of my first uh, CRP tests was pretty soon after that. It was high, you know, right? Because <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of inflammation going I on in my body. But it was because... <laughs> Because of broken bones rather than anything else going on. So that obviously like it covers all sorts of inflammations from illness and broken parts of the body. And also overtraining is I think an obvious one. Like a lot of CrossFitters would have kind of that a bit higher than like me or um, other people. So, well, Jemmy, uh, this has been great. I mean, it's tons and tons of metrics. Like this has been like a, such a full episode. Thank you very much for your time and for going through the ketosis topic, you know, so comprehensively. It's really a great map. Yeah, thank you, man. And I really appreciate that podcasts like yours are out there because I think this whole quantified self movement and trying to, you know, make yourself into a great quantified body, this is the future of medicine. And so you're really leading the charge with this podcast. And I just wish you well as you continue on. Thank you so much. I'm really happy that you've done your work as well because, you know, we can learn from you. I've done a couple. <laughs> <laughs> To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website theQuantifiedBody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.